Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to Radio tips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167 or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Most Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Their ideas about what is healthy food have been adopted by the mainstream. We're told now, the USDA even tells us, eat less sugar, eat less meat, eat more vegetables, eat tofu and tempeh, and also 50% of your grains should be whole grains. Jonathan Kaufman's new book, Hippie Food, is a great read that connects all the dots between the early health food movement of the 1950s and how it ended up today transforming the modern natural living lifestyle. But before I discover how America's taste buds got turned on to tofu, I chat with chef Joshua McFadden about the benefits of embracing seasonal produce with a new view of the calendar. He's decided to replace four seasons with six. Joshua, how are you? Doing very well. So not four seasons, not eight seasons, uh, six seasons. Six seasons. That's what we stuck with. So the two extra seasons are early and late summer. Yes. Um, And it was just really, I mean, it wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel by any stretch of the imagination. It was more of an idea of trying to figure out how to create a conversation to start talking about the things that are actually not in season. Right. So thinking about like the dead of winter when there's you know, pineapples and tomatoes and all these things at, at the supermarkets that 
shouldn't be there in my opinion. And then also just kind of like to celebrate the, the moments when everything is at their best. Yeah. I, you know, the, the, one of the problems people have, I have is if I'm not in Vermont at a farmer's market or a farm or in my own garden, I'm in Boston. I go to a high end, uh, supermarket. Um, everything looks great, but the celery doesn't, always taste great. Mm -hmm. The greens don't always taste great. So most of us are stuck with stuff that looks good, but doesn't necessarily have a lot of flavor. Is that, is there any way around that other than to go to a farmer's market? I think often the things that are in season are going to be in season in farmer's markets or supermarkets or wherever you're getting produce from. It's just, even if it's a strawberry, it shouldn't be in January. Right. If, if someone's going to grow a vegetable at home, what should they grow? Ooh, I'm obsessed with potatoes. And it's such a humble ingredient. And, and they're easy to grow. And they're easy to grow. And like pulling that thing out, like getting right. new potatoes is just right. crazy. And tomatoes as well. But they're much more difficult. But, but, but to take out some little small nugget potatoes and bring them in and just like roast them off in butter and a little piece of garlic and thyme for eight minutes is, I think, a, a very eye-opening experience to the idea of flavor. You get your shovel, go out there in, in mid-July, get those little tiny ones. Oh, they're the best. Except you cut half of them in half with a shovel if you're not careful. So that's Exactly. You got to dig them up and shake them out. Right. So dressing a salad, I've had fights with people about this who go on and on about how dressing needs to be emulsified because you get mm-hmm. you know the vinegar and the oil in the same bite. Uh, and mm-hmm. I just say this complete nonsense. Uh, and then if, I totally agree. If you go to restaurants around the world, even a bistro in Paris, you know they'll just mix them separately. I noticed in your book you you did mix them separately. Could you just mm-hmm. talk about why emulsification is is nonsense, or you just don't think it's worth doing? Um, well, we don't. We, it's one of the big things we do not do at the restaurants. So we have vinegar and we have oil and. We never, ever have vinaigrettes. Um, I think you're more a part of what you're doing, first and foremost. Like, when you're seasoning something with vinegar um, and using a great vinegar, I think that you can almost get it to taste perfect on its own, and you can add a great olive oil that's an additional flavor. Are you saying that you would dress sometimes with just vinegar or just oil, or you're saying you would add them separately? I always add them separately and I build a salad with just vinegar, salt, and cracked buck pepper and I get it to the point where it doesn't need oil. And I think that that's one of the things that we do that's definitely a lot different than most people because we're kind of really pushing the level of acidity, which I think is delicious. Are there a few things people should keep in the pantry or or you you keep at home that, that are used a lot that are things that people probably don't have? I mean, fish sauce, for example... I don't know, pomegranate molasses. What, what, what are the, the things that you think people should keep around? Oh, I definitely think a pepper mill, good vinegar. I think uh, nuts and dried fruits, a nice bottle of olive oil. That's not just sitting there for years and years that you're actually using and then replacing. Um, those are the big things, uh, like dried chilies, bay leaves. Those things I can't really, can't really live without because I think you can go and grab some stuff at the farmer's market, then come home and make a really nice, like, dried fruit, nut, salsa that goes over s- several different things. Um, cheese is always something that I always have around that's not necessarily a dry thing, but it's something I replenish often and have hard cheeses that you can grate over things, and it goes a long way. What really drives you crazy about the, the American table these days? Is, is there do you, do you see it going in a direction it shouldn't? 
do you see the way people cook at home? That uh, if you were the the czar of the American home kitchen, what would you change? I don't know. I honestly, I feel like that it's getting better. I feel like people know more about food than and have been paying more attention than they have for a long time. I think probably the number one thing is is when an inferior ingredient is somehow still always around, whether it's a bad flour or low fat. I think those things kind of drive me nuts because I think just get whole milk, eat less of it. But all in all, I honestly do believe that food's getting to be, it's better and better and better. Uh, Joshua, that's uh, great. Six Seasons, great book. I've cooked a lot out of it. Uh, terrific job, and thanks for joining us on Milk Street. Thank you so much. That was Joshua McFadden, chef and author of Six Seasons, A New Way with Vegetables. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. New shows are available every Friday on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded right to your phone. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will take some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? I think it's time to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Sam Kroc. Hi, Sam. How can we help you? Well, 40 years ago, I was living in New York City, and the croissant just didn't meet my expectations. So I whipped out my copy of Julia Child (laughs) and made a recipe. Wow. Well, they were better than what you could get in New York, and I lived on the Upper East Side. That's probably the best place to get croissant in the city. Here's my problem. Recently, I've been getting these fabulous mail-order croissants, and they're all puffed up. They just shatter when you bite them. And I said, you know, I've got to do that. So I started working on trying to make it. And I don't know what the problem is. Mine still don't puff up the way I want to. So what can I do? (laughs) One thing that occurs to me is if you let the second rise go too long, they overproof, and then they don't have any oven spring. That would be one thing to think about is maybe you should let that second rise not go as long and then throw in the cool. oven. You'll get that oven spring. Getting that second rise right is really important to get the right spring in the oven, right, Sarah? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. If they're overproofed and they sort of collapse a bit. If it gets too soft, that's also not going to give you the rise. And if you don't roll it out perfectly and everything's done just right, you're not going to get the right layers. And so it could be just technique. And uh, it is probably the hardest thing in, in baking <laughs> to do. So you set yourself up for a high bar, a very high bar. High bar. Well, I'm listen, I love to bake. The overproofing is the most obvious. But, but I wouldn't prove it at such a... I would use the temperature that she said. So what if it takes a little longer to proof the way you want it to? Uh, it it could be overproofing is, at 105 degrees. Yeah, yeah, slow proofing will give you more flavor, too. But also, is this from mastering the art of French cooking, or is this from baking with Julia? Uh, it's from mastering the art. You know what? You might want to look at baking with Julia. That's a good point. Because sometimes... I, that's the only volume. I thought I had every single... Baking with Julia? <laughs> well, baking with Julia is my I, favorite book. It's a hers. very, very good yeah, book. It's a great book. And I think it helps when you're making a recipe to uh, compare it to other, particularly in baking, to other proportions from other uh, trusted authorities and also see what kind of ingredients they're I, I just using. like to point out we're chatting with someone who makes homemade croissant. This is somebody with high aspirations. Right, right, right. And we, we really— <laughs> In the kitchen. That, good for you, man. We're very That's impressed. Good. Yes, yeah, I'm impressed. Yes. Hey, I'm a senior citizen. i got nothing else to do. <laughs> oh, well, it's a wonderful thing. My other question is maybe I ought to use pastry flour instead of all-purpose flour. 
but they all use all-purpose flour. I think it's because you need that structure you, you to hold the in the butter. Yeah. You need the gluten. You need the gluten. Pasty flour has a lower gluten content. Yes, it does. Right. It's like nine cool. or ten percent versus eleven or twelve. So, <laughs> so it's not going to give you the same structure that, you, and you need the structure to hold in the butter when you layer it with all the flour. This has been great because you've addressed the two things that make me feel like I'm inadequate. Oh I, no, no. I, well, well, listen. This has been really fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank all the you. best. If you ever get to Houston, Texas, you've got a phone number. I'll take you out and get your chicken fried steak. Oh, All right. I like that. That's a deal. Okay. Thanks for calling, okay. man. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi. Uh, my name's Nancy, and I'm calling from East Greenwich, Rhode Island. And how can we help you? Well, about a year ago, I discovered Bibimbap, and yep. I fell in love with the gochujang sauce that goes on top of it. Uh-huh. So I've made that a bunch of times, and I, then I just kind of morphed over into just using the sauce, and I'm trying to look for some creative ways of using that gojujang sauce. The only thing that I really thought of now is to put it on eggs. That's one question. And then the second question I had for you is when I went to the grocery store to buy that paste, the gojujang paste, the maker of that paste also made a couple of other kinds of pastes. One was uh, Samjang paste, and the other was Doenjang paste. I don't know what the differences are between them, and I was wondering if you had some ideas about, you know, what those differences are and maybe what to make with them. Well, the first is the hot pepper paste. Yeah. The other one, Doenjang, is fermented soybeans. Here's what I would do. It's like using harissa, for example, from the Middle East, North Africa. I would use, a, like, a tablespoon and when you're sautéing your aromatics at the beginning of a recipe, yep. like the onions, I often will put that in as a base. And I find if you're making a soup or a stew, any of those pastes, it's like adding miso to a soup, as they would in Japan. Right. It just adds a foundation flavor, and then you can build from there. And it really substitutes for adding, you know, extra meat, for example. It just gives you that solid foundation. That's what I do. I always add it to the onions. It's sort of an umami bomb, too. And I was thinking about gochujang when you were talking that I bet it'd be great on chicken wings, you know, like spicy chicken wings. So bake them up mostly almost all the way and then brush them with the gochujang. I mean, as long as you like spicy food. I do. Yes, I do. And then maybe squeeze a little lime or lemon on top afterwards. And there you go. You're there. And I would also, if you like that, I would get a really good jar, or you can make it yourself. We have a recipe for harissa. I find that to be a great pantry item in the fridge. Okay. You could use it all the time. But as I said, it's a great foundation, too, as well as a glaze. The other thing you might try is a barley-based miso. It's not the really dark stuff. It's not the light stuff. It's in between. And that's often used in any kind of a soup just to add flavor. That's another thing to keep around. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for calling. All right. Thank thanks you. for calling, okay, thanks, Nancy. Nancy. Bye. This is Most Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure or just a cooking question, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, my name is Denise. I'm from Dorchester. Hi, Denise. How are you? Very good, thank you very much. So how can we help you today? When we're cooking and it clouds for eggs in a recipe, sometimes it specifies large or jumbo or it just says eggs. Does it ever make a difference the size of the egg you're using? Oh, it makes a huge difference. Okay, we can have a fight now. Oh, really? You disagree, Chris? Well, if the recipe calls for a couple of eggs in a cake... Okay, we're talking about baking. 
Okay. No, no. But a couple eggs, you know, extra large is going to be 10%, 15% bigger than large. I don't think it makes a big oh, difference. Oh, I think it makes a huge difference. If you have difference. six eggs in a recipe, a lot, a lot of eggs, yeah, then it'll add up. But one or two eggs, I don't think it matters. A medium egg weighs 1.75 ounces and a large egg weighs about two ounces. So I say yes. I'd say always buy large. Well, here's the yeah. other thing we're going to also disagree on, I predict. Also, very important, this is how fresh they are. Because the fresher the egg, the better they behave in baking. If you put a whole egg in a glass of water and it lies on its side, it's pretty fresh. As it gets older, it develops an air pocket between the shell and the membrane, and it starts to lean upwards. And then it will stand straight up. And then eventually it will sort of bounce up and down. And then eventually it will float because that's how large the air pocket is. The, The simple answer is buy large eggs. But if you send the man out to buy the eggs for you, he's going to buy jumbo and extra large. Of course. <laughs> men, yeah, men always buy the biggest thing they can find. That's true. The typical guys. Absolutely. But, yeah, so, I mean, the numbers are two ounces for a large, and extra large is two and a quarter, and jumbo is two and a half. So you can just do the math. Yeah, yeah so oh, cool. Yeah, so you can yeah. uh, So for four or five eggs, measure them. you might use one less jumbo instead yeah. of large. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, Denise. Take care. Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Jonathan Kaufman. I'll be speaking with Jonathan about how the counterculture of the 60s and 70s shaped the aisles of the modern supermarket after the break. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. This week, we're thrilled to welcome Jonathan Kaufman to Milk Street Radio since his new book, Hippie Food, connects all the dots, going back to the 1940s and 50s, tracing the origins of the healthy lifestyle movement, which today has remade our cultural landscape. It turns out that avocado toast has been around a lot longer than you think. Your book, Hippie Food, it sounds like an autobiography <laughs> of me. I, like, I just remember those years vividly. Uh, so 
let's just start with one guy, Gypsy Boots, born in San Francisco, nineteen fifteen. And in your book, you talk about I've forgotten what is this the forties or fifties or something. He's living in Topanga Canyon for a couple of weeks in caves. Yeah. I, I, it just stood out as being this remarkable statement. So, who was this guy, and why was he living in caves? Gypsy Boots is this. Uh, to me, he was one of my favorite characters researching the book. He he was this. Uh, I guess he was kind of cast adrift by by life, and he ended up uh, traveling up and down California during the '40s and the '50s. And he, when he made his way down to Southern California, he hooked up with this group of like-minded guys who called themselves the Nature Boys. And they were really inspired by healthy living or their version of healthy living. And so they grew their hair long. They, they tended to run around naked a lot. They, um, they were largely vegetarian and even close to raw foodists. And um, Gypsy and the other nature boys, you know, they would, um, they would sort of show up at uh, Muscle Beach in Los Angeles. And, you know, while the bodybuilders were demonstrating their, their approach to health, they were giving lectures on fresh fruits and vegetables. And uh, he would have kind of been lost to history if it, if it weren't for the fact that um, he had opened this restaurant for two years called the Back to Nature Health Hut, and it and it kind of drew a bohemian crowd serving sprout sandwiches and and you know avocados and uh, but but uh, the Kook Booker so called uh, for the the Steve Allen Show, which was a nationally syndicated um, late night show uh, back in the early '60s, found Gypsy, invited him on the show, and he so delighted Steve Allen that he became this this regular guest. And so he would come on once a month, sometimes swinging in on a vine or <laughs> walking on, you know, shells with his bare feet to demonstrate how sort of natural he was. And he would make smoothies and talk about juicing and and recite poems. And he, he kind of charmed America. <laughs> So even long after the sh- the show was over, he he would tour with his band Gypsy Boots and the Harry Hoots, and <laughs> and he kind of was an ambassador for good health. So your point here is that the roots of the back to the land movement, organic farming, natural foods, healthy eating, uh, started long before the 1960s. Yeah, I was. In fact, I was impressed. That was the big surprise of researching the book was finding out just how far some of those roots go. And so, some of these ideas, which are still with us, are. I mean, there, there are three key tenets right in your book: a truly healthy body doesn't get sick, uh, fasting exercises toxins, and refined foods are poison. And and those those tenets occurred before my generation, the hippies, came along. Uh, but I think those are still with us, right? I mean, that really hasn't changed. Oh, I agree. Yeah, so many of the ideas, you know, date back to the 19th century. And Sylvester Graham, who was, we, we know because of graham crackers and right. graham flour, he was one of the first people to rail against the, the dangers of processed wheat and, you know, and also was worried about adulteration of, of flour, and so his, you know, this idea that whole grain bread was better than this commercially processed bread was so sort of novel at the time. But that's a 150-year-old critique that's finally taking hold. So there's Sylvester Graham in the 1880s. Uh, there are these 40s and 50s, uh, Muscle Beach, but, but, the, but the natural version of that. Uh, juicing becomes popular in Hollywood 
a lot of actors and actresses are starting to go to these little health food restaurants like The Source. Uh, the avocado melt shows up early on. And then all of a sudden, in your book, it makes the connection to philosophy. So you have a health food movement, but you also have a health food philosophy, right? And so yin and yang start coming into that. So, so tell us about that. How did philosophy enter the world of eating? Yeah. So the person who, who really kind of shaped the, the counterculture diet as we know it the most um, was named George Asawa. And he was a Japanese man who um, first made it to the United States around 1960. And, and he had taken uh, a movement in Japan, that this, a very, very tiny movement to rid the Japanese diet of Western influences and, and, and sort of advocate for a Japanese peasant diet as a way of sort of restoring the, the populace to health. And he'd combined it with his ideas about Eastern philosophy, or with not his ideas, but his take on uh, Eastern philosophy and the ideas of yin and yang. He kind of in, in some ways, he really made up his own ideas of yin and yang. So the yin foods were um, like sugar and alcohol and tropical fruits uh, and yang foods, um, kind of the most, the, the, the most yang food in, in many ways was meat. Um, but he claimed that Americans were so out of balance because they were eating these extremes and we really needed to, to, to be a, a little more subtle in how we balance them in the diet. And, and then the term Zen macrobiotics comes into play. Yeah. And, and that was sort of an ersatz concept. And, and, and what did that mean? He was a, in fact, it kind of means nothing um, <laughs> in the sense that he was a master marketer of his ideas. And he recognized that there was this American interest in Zen. And so he just tacked the word on to his own diet and had no connection with Buddhism whatsoever. And then uh, Michio Kushi shows up in Brookline, Massachusetts. He becomes a sort of guru of macrobiotics. He starts a journal called East-West Journal. Uh, And all of a sudden, you now have a social movement. You have food. Yeah. And what Michio Kushi, he was one of his disciples back in Japan and and was kind of sent uh, abroad, and Michio and his wife, Aveline, to the United States. And they ended up forming their own school in the 60s. And they kind of removed some of the excesses of George Osawa's ideas, like, for example, the idea that if you ate nothing but brown rice for 10 days, you could cure your body of disease. And they instituted a much more sane diet, but they also attracted legions of counterculture kids to Boston where they had these study houses and they would study not just diet but um, you know Japanese arts like uh, shiatsu or massage and um, and ikebana uh, but they also um, they also created a, a, an infrastructure they set up a store called Erwan and that it, it collected a lot of these natural foods, these whole grains, and even some of them, you know, found organic sources from them at a time when those were very, very rare. And they became a distributor as much as they were a store and ended up, you know, when, when the natural foods movement took off in 1970 and 1971, they were the ones in place to, to supply all of these tiny co-ops and food stores that sprung up. Okay, so we're going to do a little role-playing so I'm a 1975 <laughs> hippie in Vermont, okay? And, and you've just descended from the future. And, and I'm very hopeful about where this is going. And I have a vision of where we're going. And you actually know where it went. So, so why don't you describe to me what happened between 1975 and 
2018. Has, has any of that remained and, and has, or has some of it morphed into something else? What, what happened to that time and, and that movement? I, I, think, I think your 1975 self would be, would be a little horrified and, and also a little pleased with what happened. It felt, I mean, so much of what I think the counterculture was moving toward was, was creating a new society and, and um, a new economy through food co-ops and, and other anti-capitalist enterprises. And those all, those all, most of those collapsed. So I think they would be they may be horrified that all of these ideas of, of, you know, the sort of small network of farms supplying food co-ops and, you know, creating food for the people, not for profit, all, all died off. But at the same time, so many of the foods they adopted are still around. And more importantly, the organics, for example, has become a $43 billion a year business, right. um, which is both good and bad. You know, it's, it's corporate organics, but also organics have spread well beyond counterculture uh, um, circles. Their ideas about what is healthy food have been adopted by uh, the, the nutritionists, by, by the mainstream. And, and so, you know, we're told now, the USDA even tells us, eat less sugar, eat less meat, eat more vegetables, eat tofu and tempeh, and also 50% of your grains should be whole grains. So before you did this research for your book, you had one idea of the history of this. Obviously, that idea changed. What, what was the most surprising thing you found in the research? I think um, part of it was the was the role of macrobiotics. I mean, I had I had just I hadn't really grown up around macrobiotics. I had grown up around you know a lot of the foods I call hippie foods, but um, and so I, I had no idea what what a central role they played in building this uh, sort of this new food chain. But the the other thing that really surprised me, and and this because I because I'm Generation X, I grew up in the 1970s. Um, I think I had this kind of idea of who the counterculture kids were and how this sort of loosey-goosey, hippie, whatever. And uh, I, I guess I, I gave them permission to be really young when they were doing all this and not know what they were doing and maybe not know how to cook all these foods. But also so many people put in so much volunteer labor to build this movement that it really impressed me how selfless a lot of their actions were. Well, you know, thinking about the earlier question of 2018 versus 1975, I wonder if this movement um, was essentially co-opted and became lifestyle. You know, it's beautifully packaged. Yeah. It became sort of sexy. Uh, it it was not a, com- a life commitment. It was a lifestyle. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's very fair. Um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, grocers, mainstream grocers really discovered that these foods were selling. And so they picked them up and added them to their shelves. And then uh, grocery stores like Whole Foods came around, which really repackaged the idea of natural foods and brought it in in line with like gourmet food and made the shopping experience a sort of this, this gourmet experience. And it was hugely, as we all know, it's hugely successful. So uh, you've done the past. How about the future? What's next now? <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, I still I take heart from the fact that organics continues to grow, the natural foods store shelves and stores con- continue to grow, the USDA continues to embrace things like whole grains and and tempeh uh, and tofu. Um, I you know, I think one of the things I've I also learned from this is that I I have no I, I don't necessarily have a way of knowing what is going to happen based on what's happening now. I th- I look at movements like 
uh, gluten-free and paleo and some of the other diets that feel like fad diets. And, and I sort of think, well, you know, if you don't have celiac disease, I don't know what the deal is. But, but I think that they're going to change and continue to change our diet in these, in these ways that we really can't predict. That was Jonathan Kaufman, author of the culinary history book, Hippie Food, How Back to the Landers, Longhairs, and Revolutionaries Changed the Way We Eat. You know, my view of the hippie movement radically changed in the spring of 1971. That year, I hitchhiked up to Taos, New Mexico, to spend time on the hog farm, a commune founded by Wavy Gravy. I was shocked to find a filthy kitchen, a lack of culinary skills, a few bedraggled goats used for milking, and freezing bunkhouses because nobody knew how to bank a fire in the wood stove. I cooked, I cleaned, I left. The good news is that today, many have fully embraced that hardscrabble fulfilling life, and I guess that's progress. You know, there are no easy answers, but at least the young farmers of today know it's hard work and dedication that make the difference. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I've had wonderful experiences in Paris, as most people do when they go there, but I did once go to one of the oldest bistros in Paris, Chez Lamy Louis, very well known, and uh, I was really looking forward to it. Well, I ordered foie gras, and I got enough for 10. There's these huge slabs, you know. <laughs> then I ordered some asparagus, and they were size of you know, small baseball bats. You know, I got a huge plate of those. And so, you know, I'm into like a couple hundred dollars already. And then I finally ordered the chicken on cocotte, which means that oval Dutch oven. And that was delicious. Great juices, great flavor, very simply done. So that was a home run. So a- after that expensive experience, maybe we've got something good, which is a chicken in a pot recipe. So what we need to do here, Chris, is let go of the skin. You can get a really great moist chicken without a lot of effort by just letting go of having crispy skin. And really, we're eating the chicken for the meat here, right? So we're getting a really moist chicken without a lot of prep and a lot of effort. It's a super simple recipe that even creates its own sauce in the pot. So this is a Dutch oven. It's in a hot oven, I assume. Is it breast side up, breast side down? What, what are the basics? So it's not a super hot oven. It's about 400 degrees. We start on the stovetop for just about five minutes. All we're doing is really getting some aromatics going. So we've got onion, garlic, deglaze with a little white wine, add some thyme sprigs, and then add the chicken breast side down. And what that will do is allow that liquid that's at the bottom of the pot to really gently poach that white meat. It's very delicate. It goes into the oven for about an hour. And then when it comes out, you want to rest the chicken. And then while you're doing that, you make a really quick sauce on the stovetop. It's super simple, just butter, Dijon mustard, and lemon juice. Now, we've also tested this with lots of other toppings. You could put harissa on it, you know, the North African uh, chili paste, uh, pomegranate molasses, I was speaking with uh, a cookbook author, Olia Hercules, about in Azerbaijan, they use sort of a bitter plum paste. So you can put a lot of stuff on it and just cook it that way in the oven. It's really anything you want to put on top. That's right. This recipe really lends itself to variation. It's kind of whatever you want to think of, you can do here. You could add different things to the base of the sauce. We have another recipe that uses shallots and dried apricots. Prunes are really great here. It's really just up to you, and you can make it different every time you make it. So you can skip the expensive French bistro with a foie gras and the asparagus tips uh, and really go for a very simple dish, chicken in a pot, chicken on cocotte. Thank you very much, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. 
This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to answer some questions from our listeners. I'm here with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you awake? Are you ready to go? Chris, I am ready to do this. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Robert calling from Corona, California. Hi, Robert. I have a question on black garlic. Ah. I'm not sure what to do with it or how to use it. Well, it's great stuff. I mean, have you tasted it? No. No? You're calling because you have some or you're calling because you want to get some? I have some. My mother dropped off a Tupperware full of some. Wow. Well, it's very, very slowly cooked garlic that ends up black and very sweet. And I find it somewhat bitter as well. But it has deep, deep savory flavor. It just adds something to any savory recipe. I would just throw it in if you're sautéing onions, which, you know, every French recipe starts that way. Right. I would just add a little bit to the onions. It's just as a foundational flavor. Any sofrito, any vegetables you're sautéing, just add some of it to that. It'll just give you more depth of flavor in the dish. Anywhere you use garlic, you can use this. Have you ever had roasted garlic, you know, the kind where you cut off the top and drizzle some olive oil and throw it in the oven and bake it, you know, for an hour? Yeah. So this is that. Yeah plus more, with, I say, a little bit of a bitter edge. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it's kind of like me. Sweet with a kind of bitter edge. <laughs> Long, slow cooked with a bitter edge. Yeah. I don't know about that. But it also, I imagine, freezes well since it's cooked because you've eliminated most of the water in it. So I would freeze it and take out what you need each time, and suddenly you're going to find your dishes all have an extra sort of je ne sais quoi This would be a great addition for a lot of vegetarians because it's got so much of that, you know, deep flavor, that umami that you usually get from meat. But this is a different way to get it. So you're a lucky man. So your mother, why did she drop off and how did she get the black garlic? Don't know. I, you know, my first mistake was probably giving her a key to my house. (laughs) I came home one day after work and there was a roasting pan and a gravy boat on my kitchen table, and then all the black garlic in my refrigerator. This sounds this is like a bit my of a mother. mystery. This yeah. is, yeah, un- unexplained actions by one's mother that you never figure out. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think you're a lucky man with a secret ingredient that most people don't have just kicking around the house, and you should start using it. Yeah, and just use it, as I said, as a foundation when you're sautéing at the beginning of a recipe. Yeah, or anywhere yeah. you'd add garlic or roasted garlic. Perfect. And then invite your mother over, yeah. which I think was the point. Yeah. yeah. All okay. Right. Well, thank you. Good luck. Thank you very much. I yeah. appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for calling. Okay. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, Marsha Conrad. Hi, Marsha Conrad. How are you? 
I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? Well, I have an old recipe from my aunt to Georgia, and it's absolutely fabulous pound cake recipe. However, I'm noticing that for some reason it doesn't become solid in the middle, and I don't recall that happening before. And I just don't know whether it's because I was beating it too much because it's largely only sugar, flour, and eggs. And butter. And butter. Yeah. Have you changed your oven? Have you changed the cookware? Has anything changed since you've noticed it's not baking all the way through? Well, I've tried it in two different ovens, and I'm still having the same problem. Is there any uh, baking powder in this recipe or is not? No. Well, one thing you could try is adding a little bit of leavener to it. I know traditionally they didn't use it, but I think Mm -hmm. that might help a little to get some rise and and solve the brick problem. Okay. I just wonder whether 350 doesn't sound like the wrong temperature to me, though. I have one other question as well. What kind of sugar are you using? Just general sugar I buy in the grocery store. Is it the store brand? It could be, yes. That might be the problem. Apparently, not all sugar is created equal, meaning in terms of its texture. And since you've only got four ingredients in the recipe, it really matters what they are. Store brand sugars can be finer ground than these, you know, national brands, and that could affect the creaming process. You know, I think you might be right. Yeah, that could really affect... I I have two other suggestions. Uh, This is a recipe you want to weigh your ingredients. Yes. Because it's so crucial to get the right amounts. Uh, The other thing is, how are you creaming the butter and sugar? This isn't a standing mixer. You're using a hand mixer. How do you do it? A hand mixer. And I try not to overmix it. Is it really light and fluffy by the time you... I mean, it takes three to five minutes. It's very gooey at the end. Yeah, it should be fluffy. should be light and fluffy. Yeah, and so make sure your butter's at, like, cool room temperature, 65 to 67 degrees. It's malleable, and then it's going to take you four or five minutes, and you really want to get it fluffy. It may be that you're not aerating that enough. And pound cakes, the lift is based entirely on the creaming. And so if you don't cream it right, it's going to be dense, and maybe that's why it's not cooking properly inside. So it should be really light, and the butter should be very pale, yellow, almost white by the time you're finished. That could be a problem, too. That might be, because I thought I was doing it by not beating it a lot, and so maybe I'm not beating it enough. Yeah, it sounds like you're not beating enough air into it. Yeah, which is because there's no other leavener in a pound cake. That's why a little leavener. And also the eggs will give it some lift. I'd add at least a teaspoon of baking powder, just as insurance policy, by the way. Okay. All right. Well, All these right. are great suggestions. I really appreciate it. Yeah, just cream that butter till it's really pale right. and really fluffy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. okay, take right. care. Okay, thanks so much. Yep. Bye-bye. This is Most Straight Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. That is 855-426-9843. Or please send us an email at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Hi, this is Randy Goldberg from New Rochelle, New York. Hi, Randy. What is your question today? My local high-end grocery store occasionally sells half turkeys, which Ooh, is great because there's only two of us at home. Yep. But I was thinking about the best way to handle it. Would you treat it like a spatchcock turkey in terms of timing and cooking methods? 
Yes, <laughs> I would. Well, you, you really don't have to worry about it because, well, first of all, how are you roasting it? What temperature? Are you using different temperatures? You're putting it on a rack? How are you doing it? Well, I haven't actually done it yet. So I was thinking about what kinds of recipes I would go looking for to use this. Yeah, a spatchcock is fine. I mean, I think the point is make sure you have a good instant read thermometer and then check it after an hour or so and then just keep checking it all the time. Check the thigh and the breast. The recipes for roasting turkeys are very general and not specific because your oven's going to be different than anybody else's. But spatchcock is fine, which is on a rack. You can also cook it over rice or cook it over potatoes or vegetables and let the fats roll down into the, especially potatoes, which is a great way to do it. So a roasting pan on a rack over potatoes, that would be great. But I would say, you know, the old butterball 325 method actually isn't a bad method. No, I agree. It's a good method. There's nothing wrong with it. It usually browns in that amount of time. But you're absolutely right in thinking that a spatchcock, meaning once you flatten the bird, so for people who don't know, spatchcock is you take out the backbone and flatten the bird completely and cook it flat. So you've got half a flattened bird. It will take less time to cook than a whole bird would have taken. So you are correct about that. The trouble is the first time you do it, because this is sort of uncharted waters, you're going to have to figure out the timing. I think Chris is right. How much do you think this half a bird is going to weigh? Um, six pounds? They look like they, eight pounds? Yeah, probably yeah, six or seven pounds. It looks like they're taking something in that size range. Yeah, I, I can't see them doing half of a really big turkey. I think Chris is right. Check it after. An hour and a half, probably, yeah. something like that. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking about doing it over a pan of sort of traditional stuffing. Yeah, yes. that's fine. Get to that Thanksgiving idea. And the other thing you might try, if you can, is salt. Put some kosher salt on the skin and let it sit on a rack uncovered in the fridge overnight, if you have room, and then right. go ahead and roast it, and that'll make a much crispier skin, too. Yeah. All right. Thank All you. Right, thanks, thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Colleen in Petaluma, California. Hi, Colleen. How can we help you today? Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. Sure. I am calling because <laughs> I have a chocolate question. Okay. Uh, for about the past Oh, 20 years, I have made biscotti as Christmas gifts, and I always decorate them with a squiggle of melted chocolate. Nice. (laughs) I think they're a nice gift, but in the last couple of years, the chocolate, after about a day, has bloomed and gotten, oh, kind of an unappealing gray color to it. And I'm curious as to why that's happening and uh, how I can prevent that in the future. Two things. What kind of chocolate are you using, and what, if anything, are you doing differently than you used to do? I uh, haven't done anything differently. I've always used melted chocolate chips as the decoration that I've piped on. Are you using the same brand? I am. (laughs) And I'm wondering if the formula has changed. It has changed. Well, first of all, I would never use chips to melt for a squiggle. Get a semi-sweet or a chocolate or bittersweet chocolate, you know, a good one like Ghirardelli, and melt that. And that should not bloom because chocolate chips contain lots of stabilizers because in the heat of the oven, like in a chocolate chip cookie, they want it to retain right. its uh, shape. shape. That's actually a relatively new development. I mean, I think it's gotten more extreme than it used to be. But the other thing is, have you ever tried tempering it? No, I am aware of that, but I don't know how to do it. Well, what I would, it's... it's. Yeah, just, just don't do it. 
Oh, come on. We're not going to temper chocolate. I'm going to give you the opportunity to find out a little more. Switch up the chocolate. But if you want, if you Google and go online, there's tutorials. There's two ways to do it. One is Mm -hmm. rather complicated. You take it up to a temperature. You take it down to a temperature. You add some more chocolate. Right. But the other way is uh, in the microwave and holding some back. There's several uh, tutorials online that I think are not that difficult that you could try. But I think just getting a better quality yeah. chocolate would be good. And you don't refrigerate it, right? So that's not the issue. I do not. I will give a better quality chocolate a try, and hopefully that will solve my problem. If that doesn't work, I'll go through the tempering process. The tempering but, might be uh, fun. <laughs> okay. I've always wanted to, and I've gotten a little intimidated looking at the instructions, but uh, you're telling me it's not that hard. It isn't. And the more you do it, the better no, you th- get. No, this is like Sarah's idea of a good time is like tempering chocolate, making puff pastry, <laughs> doing a bouillabaisse base all on Saturday afternoon. No, so, no, but you know. if she bakes, it's 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 great, and it makes such a difference. You get a much nicer sheen. And oh, okay. Not- yeah, you, well, it may be necessary even with good chocolate. You may have to temper it to make sure it doesn't bloom. But I, I would start there. Yeah. And okay. maybe you have I to end up in the world of microwave tempering. Yes. Colleen, thanks so much for calling. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for your yeah, time. Sure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye now. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Mill Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is how to make a quick and easy coconut rice. Simply take one and a half cups of rinsed rice with one cup of water and one cup of coconut milk with a large pinch of salt. Bring to a simmer, cover, reduce to low heat, and cook for about 18 minutes before fluffing with a fork. By the way, if you want to further boost the coconut flavor, try adding a little bit of unsweetened shredded coconut and a spritz of lime juice. Now it's time to hear from Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. Dan, how are you? All right, Chris. How are you doing? I need to have some fun. That's why I just called you up. So what are we doing today? Well, we are going to help couples in crisis. Are you speaking about me or you? <laughs> crisis may be a strong word, but I sometimes take calls from Sporkful podcast listeners, and they sometimes come to me with relationship issues. And there's an issue that I've been hearing about a lot lately, and it is this. A person who loves food, loves to cook new dishes and spend time in the kitchen and share food with friends and family and try new things and go out to new restaurants is dating or married to a person who is the opposite, who is a picky eater or who goes on extreme diets, cuts out whole food groups, or just generally doesn't care about food and doesn't get pleasure from it. And this creates tension in these relationships because the food lover and the picky eater are at loggerheads and they can't share this experience together. And so the food lover comes to me and says, what do I do? So what do you think, Chris? I want to pick your brain. I want you to give me the answer because it sounds like my marriage. I mean, my wife is actually a very good cook and does love food, but she also, you know, is into cleansing diets, chia seeds, carob, kombucha, goat yogurt. We have an entire shelf devoted to goat yogurt in the refrigerator. Uh, And so on a day-to-day basis, it's rather grim. We, We do come together like on weekends, but during the week, I would say, yeah, it's sort of like his food, her food. And how do you how do you deal with that when it when it becomes a source of frustration? When you're old as I am, you don't deal with anything. <laughs> you accept, <laughs> accept. Just it's a very important word. Accept. So 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 you think you have a solution? I'm dying. I'm dying to hear the solution. 
No, I, I, I don't know that I do have a solution per se. I mean, I, I think you people have to recognize whether this is a deal breaker issue in a relationship. My relationship with my wife is similar to yours, Chris. My wife is not super into food. I would not describe her as a picky eater. She does love a wide range of different foods, but she doesn't have that passion for it. Like when I'm traveling for work, she will skip meals by accident and then have a bowl of cereal for dinner on the couch. <laughs> and I'm not knocking that, but but you know, but there are times when I want to be excited about trying something new and she's just not excited about it. And you know, w- one option is that you can go and eat with other people. I, I will sometimes go out for meals with, with food-loving friends. My wife and I kind of have a, a polyeaterist relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Polyeatery may be for you too, Chris. You know, you're never too old to try a new lifestyle. No, no. Dan, you get to the point you are, in fact, too old. <laughs> no, there are people in the world who have two kinds of eating, right? They have everyday eating and they have special day eating. And what they do on the special days is totally different, like when they're traveling on a weekend, friends coming over, and then they have every day. So it's like Monday through Thursday and then Friday through Sunday. But, but that makes sense, and I would imagine that when your wife is in her Friday through Sunday special occasion eating mode, you guys are still able to go out and enjoy food yeah. together and we connect. cook together, or, yeah, she loves that. Right. But Monday right. through right. Thursday, is, is it's goat yogurt on the sofa. <laughs> but, but you can imagine that, that if you were in a relationship with someone who was eating goat yogurt seven days a week and never wanted to cook with you or never wanted to share meals with you, that, that, would that be could— a non-starter, yeah. Right. And so. So, so, you know, there are people out there suffering from that, and I think some of them— you know, if you can find other things, other areas where you have a strong connection and strong common ground, then you can overcome the lack of connection on food. But food's a big one. And and uh, I, I've been talking a lot lately with uh, the great legendary food critic Mimi Sheridan. She, she wrote a piece for the Daily Beast talking about the idea that all these dating apps and online dating services never ask whether or not you're going to eat well together. And that's an important question, and that's something you should suss out early on in a relationship, I think. So so I, you're taking it from the point of view of the person who is the super eater, but what about the point of view of the person who's not? Is, is it a burden to be married to somebody who really loves food and wants to try something new? Sometimes, I'm sure it is. I suspect that if my wife were here, she would say, sometimes it's great because I cook delicious things or take her out to fun restaurants, but sometimes it's annoying because I get hung up on like, I really want to cook lamb shanks and I can't find lamb shanks. And she's like, just shut up and make chicken thighs. So yes, I think that it is wearing sometimes to be with somebody who obsesses over food to an extreme. Well, Dan, I have a suggestion. It's it's the t-shirt. You need to get a t-shirt that says, shut up and just make chicken thighs. That's <laughs> And just wear that around the house all the time, and you'll be all set. Dan Pasher of the Sportful Podcast, thank you. Thanks, Chris. Enjoy that goat yogurt. (laughs) That was Dan Pashman of the Sportful Podcast. That's it for this week's show. You can listen to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe to our show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Producer, Tristan Cimini. Associate producer, 
Carly Helmetog. Production assistant, Jackie Nowak. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugar. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by the Public Radio Exchange. Thank you.